Well, welcome to another episode of the Gary Anderson F1 Show. I'm Ed Straw, and as always, the man whose name is above the door, Gary Anderson, the former Jordan and Stewart technical director, is with me. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the big stories that came out of the Russian Grand Prix weekend, some of the big technical topics, and some of the other topics that will uh, drift into Gary's areas of expertise, shall we say. I imagine we might mention the word penalty on a, on a few occasions. But uh, Gary, how did you enjoy... Uh, Joy Sochi. It's a funny, it's always a bit of a funny race, isn't it? Normally something happens, but it's not a great racetrack, is it? It's not a great racetrack. I mean, something does happen for sure. Um, but it's one of those sort of races I'm, I'm not quite sure whether it was good or bad. Um, the expectation of you know Hamilton getting a penalty obviously brought some excitement into those early, early laps um, because we didn't know what was going to happen. But if that hadn't been there, it would have been a bit of a procession, to be honest. Um, ended up being, being okay, I think. Um, a few tangles at the fr- on the first lap again. Um, Saints's tangle with the with the wall and that little chicane trying to not not join the track too abru- abruptly or acutely. Um, obviously raised a bit of a spectacle, and then, and then you get four whatever it was four laps of, of safety car, which you know that that always hurts a little bit. I'm not quite sure why you know you need four laps of that because we should be able to react quite a lot faster than that to be honest. But um, but anyway, uh, the end result is the end result, and Bottas got the points and the uh, fastest lap and uh, closed the championship up that little bit. Not enough, I don't think, for the for the big term for the long term future, but a bit for now. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to be running down to the bookies to put some cash on Valtteri Bottas, much as uh, he'd probably like everyone to. But inevitably, we've got some questions about penalties. This one's kind of a general one from Christopher Parch, which it does touch on the Hamilton penalty, but asks, are the stewards being too harsh on drivers this year? Suggests there's multiple examples of hard enforcements with Hamilton, Ricardo's five-second penalty, that has formation lap thing in Hungary a few races ago. What's your general feeling on that? Yeah, I do think there's a, a little bit more of a black and white, to be honest, now than there used to be. There was there was a fair amount of grey areas, um, and and I think sometimes it was taken into account who it was and, and how bad a boy they really were, you know, in general, as opposed to just this one instant. But I think, to be honest, to, to be able to sort of assess them all and do something about them, we need to get black and white, because then you can look at them and say, well, they are a bit ridiculous, or this one's not so good. You know, you can't. That whenever it's a grey area, you're never quite sure whether it's a, a good regulation or a bad regulation. At least if you have a bit of a term where there is a um, you know sort of black and white penalties, then at the end of the day, you can adjust them to suit the infringement. And I think that's what needs to be done. To be honest, we need to recognise now what the the infringements really are. And, and there's quite you know there's although there's quite a few different infringements, they, they all fall into slightly different categories and there's not that many categories, you know, dangerous driving, going off the track. Um, you know, th- th- there's sort of, you could black and white them pretty quickly and you could say, well, this this type of incident deserves a, a five-second penalty. This type of incident deserves a 10-second penalty. The next one deserves a, a stop and go. And you could, you know, you could really rationalise them quite well so that when you've done it as a driver, you know immediately that you're going to get something and it's not having to go to a judgment of a, of the stewards again, just to sort of come up with perhaps a different penalty because there are quite a few of the penalties that are subject to the stewards opinion of it. Um, that's never a good area to be in, to be honest. I'd rather have it black and white and then adjust that black and white to suit the infringements. Well, I think what you say there makes a lot of sense. You've got the framework, but then you have the, the room to maneuver, shall we say, because not, 
people always say they want consistency, but you never quite have exactly the same situation. But this this is going to be my question. Nobody sent this question in, but uh, I think it's a valid one. But related to that, because people do suggest, why don't we have a permanent stewards panel? So you could have the same four stewards for every race. Or maybe if you want a tiny bit of flexibility, you could have a pool of, let's say, eight or something. So there's a degree of rotation. But permanent stewards rather than the the kind of movable feast that it currently is. And that would, in my opinion, nobody's here for my opinion, but that would at least allow that leeway within the framework because you'll be able to think, well, I've been the steward for the past 40 races. And I remember oh, we did that with Roman Grosjean and we did that with Lewis Hamilton and this with Daniel Ricciardo. And this is kind of there. So that that would surely allow them to operate in the grey areas in a more satisfactory way without being sort of tied by the black and white. Yeah, I um, I do agree, but I, I just find it difficult that, that there isn't there isn't a regulation in the book that's created, you know, in my opinion, by the by the teams, by F1 and by the uh, FIA, that everybody is happy uh, results in a penalty. And I'll take an example, they, you know, they're going over the, the sausage curve at turn two. Um, obviously, Ricardo got a five-second penalty for doing that. It was a bit of a, a misjudgment with his own teammate, to be honest. But still, he got a five-second penalty for, for doing that. Now, if you look during qualifying, um, there was people going over that curb or during practice as well. There's people going over that curb. To what extent do you have to go over those sausage curbs? It's a, it's a very, 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 very slim difference between having that penalty and not having that penalty. There was three sausage curbs there, one short one in the middle and two longer ones. And, you know, whenever you, whenever you try to ride over them, for sure you lost time. Um, so is that penalty justified or do you have to have all three sausage curbs on the right-hand side of the car or, or all three on the left-hand side to be right? You know, where is that line, to be honest? And I think that was a, a big question at, at, um, in Sochi. And I think that, you know, track limits is something that needs to be really looked at. There is there is the white line, there is the curbs. You know, there's lots and lots of mechanisms for looking at these things now. There's lots and lots of cameras. And they can all be looked at to see whether or not um, a, a driver went over over the line. And, and you know, he needs, to, he, needs to, he needs to use some judgment himself, to be honest. Ricardo did. Ricardo thought, oh, I'm in trouble here. And, you know, he, he bought into it and got his head down and tried to make up that five seconds. Um, as I said, you know, I would like to see those penalties um, put in place immediately because it's it's wrong that if you can gain a place by doing a Banzai overtake um, and you get in front of somebody who's been delaying you a bit and then you who, who might be running a completely different strategy and he's trying to make his strategy work by saving the tyres and he's driving a bit more careful than you but he can't just, he doesn't want to just pull over and let you pass. So he's trying to delay you a bit. Um, and if you can do a banzai, pass them, and then carry on with clear air and, and pick up those five seconds on them, that's not correct because you've used, you've used an off-track excursion to gain a position to allow you room to, to, to push on. And that's, you know, I think we need to find a solution that the penalties are black and white in place and that if you do it, this is the, this is the penalty. You have to do that. Now, Ricardo, from my point of view, if he and his team agreed that he had done wrong in going over that curb, they should have the responsibility of losing five seconds within the next lap. It's easy enough to do. It's not, you know, it's no drama. He just has to slow down and lose five seconds. Whether that means he loses a position or he doesn't lose a position, it doesn't really matter. Just needs to lose that five seconds there and then as opposed to I'm going to push on for 20 laps and then and then I'll take my penalty. You know, that shouldn't be allowed. 
It's become slightly complicated by the fact that the, the kind of hard and fast rule there was that you've got to take the chicane, isn't it, and the runoff. And that caused all sorts of problems because the the later you take it, the harder it is. Carlos Sainz was caught out by that. but And then it varies from kind of corner to corner and track to track, doesn't it? So I, I actually feel that, you know, we ask what the stewards can do, but the stewards, all they can do is sit down, look at what's happened, read what the rules or the direct race director's notes say and then apply them and sometimes you'll be in a situation where and actually uh canada last year with the vettel penalty in hamilton was one where the stewards actually would have quite liked just to let it go and say well it was a it was a bit iffy but we'll let it go but because the rules said what they said they actually had to to do it and like you say they don't have that sort of leeway to to do it so it's quite a broad thing and track limits of course is a is a whole discussion about track design and natural track limits would be the ideal wouldn't they rather than unnatural ones that are painted or curbed or whatever so it's it it goes well beyond the stewards doesn't it yeah it goes well beyond the stewards but i think you know if you look at motor gp they've they've adopted the the track limits thing and they do it very well there's a there's a curb and there's a it turns green you go on the green you get done for it you lose your lap um you go on the green during the race you know three times you get a warning fourth time you you have to do this slow lap or the loop thing so they can police it, you know. Why? How can they police it? It's all done by cameras. Um, Formula One car, you know, can police it as well. So it is possible to do it and have it as a black and white regulation everywhere. It doesn't matter whether it's the white line or whether it's the red and white curves. It'd just be the same everywhere rather than different every race meeting you go to. And also because of that, uh, as I say, turn to at Sochi with the sausage curves there. I personally don't come away from there knowing which curves you ha- you can or cannot go over um because at the end of the day you know you, you are it's, it's such a fine line you know and uh, again it'd be far far better if it's just a definite curb sort of uh that you use as the as the guideline and as far as that the, the chicane thing the the polystyrene blocks there you know the whole objective of that is to make sure that the driver doesn't come onto the track too acutely but they weren't positioned right to stop that you know that last that last polystyrene block that was on your right-hand side, you could still get through there um, if you tried and go straight across the track quite quickly. You know, Carlos Sainz showed that. Yes, he had an accident, but he tried to go through there as, as fast as physically possible and caught the wall. So, you know, there needs to be more put into these little things, I think, than what's being done. I'm not, I don't want to complain about it all because it's wrong. But at the end of the day, if you're going to have regulations, then you're going to have regulations and you have to adhere to them. Those regulations might be wrong, they might be right. But if you get consistently consistent application of those regulations, then you can look at them and think about how you might modify them to make them more understandable or, or you know, or more definitive. I think it's one of those things you suggested in your one of your written pieces that kind of over the winter need to sit down and go over all these problems and penalties and situations and try and build some consistency in there and have a discussion about it and then if there's there's always going to be little track specific problems but yeah f1's got itself into a little bit of a bind on uh on, on some of these things hasn't it and it's it's a shame that we're always talking about uh, penalties there's another question about penalties from james king who asks are the fia using unorthodox penalties and excessive red flag and safety cars to manipulate the spectacle and if so is it a good thing um i don't think they genuinely are i think they're applying it slightly differently um you know, Michael Massey has got hasn't got as much experience as Charlie Whiting had in, in running the show. Charlie came up through the years with it, so he sort of evolved it, and and probably was more ease with it. And I think um, Michael Massey's still caught in the same little box where, you know, he has to make a judgment and make it fairly quickly. 
and the best judgment you can make is 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 what you classify as the right judgment. And if that means a red flag or a safety car or a, um, a, a, a what you call it, the other safety car, um, you know, it, that's what has to be. Uh, it's it's a difficult job, very very difficult job, because somebody will always get um, annoyed about it one way or another. Either the driver that's getting penalised or or the others because such and such a one wasn't penalised. But I think the rules need to, you know, the rules need to be looked at and altered to suit. And as I say, make them more black and white, and then adjust them adjust them to suit the the infringements. And I think simple things like, you know, you look at the tire situation under a red flag, and we had it in the last couple of races where you can change the tires and um, not have to do your tire swap. Then you can change the tires because of safety grounds when you're in the pits under a red flag, and then you don't have to do a, a you know your mandatory pit stop. I mean, that's just simply basically wrong because at the end of the day, that's what not, not what the regulation says. You know, you can change it for safety grounds, but I think you should have to put on the same the same compound tyre. So that means you still have to do your mandatory pit stop. And that eliminates a lot of the potential for somebody winning out. It's great to see it happening sometimes, but at the end of the day, it's you know, it's not it's not black and white. It's not it's not straightforward. And and why should you just because you've hung out there and hope to be a safety car, why should you, or a, or a red flag, why should you benefit from it? Because of somebody else's pain. You, you get the gain and they get the pain, and that's that really isn't the race, is it? That's just just hanging it out there, not knowing what's you know what the solution is, really. Yeah, and in recent times, most of these decisions have been necessary ones or forced by the rules. I don't think there have been any questionable red flags or safety cars, really, because they're, they're deployed for, for good reasons. I think there has been a time in the past where occasionally the stewards' room was a little bit uh, political, but I don't think it's been like that for quite some time, to be honest. I think that's, they're pretty straight with that. Now, a question about Stefano Domenicali from FS12R, who asks, is the new CEO of F1 going to be impartial? Well, that's up to him, to be honest, you know. I would um, I would ask questions personally if it was me and the team and, and we had this situation where we've got Jean Todd heading the FIA, Ross Braun heading F1 and uh, managing director technical-wise and, uh, and another Ferrari person heading heading up um, the, the other side of it, you know, the business side of it. But I, I think Stefano as a person is a very good person. He's probably a very good person for that job. I don't know him well enough. I know him as team principal at Ferrari. I know him talk to, but I don't know his personal background. They must think he's good enough, he's good for that job. Um, what the job he's going to do is, I'm not quite sure. But you know, you go on and back through it all, all through all the people that's that's involved in it, and they are nearly all colleagues of somebody from working together in the past, somewhere along the line. Um, so it, it it could be a little bit smelly. I'm not quite sure whether that's the right word for it or not. But I think Stefano Domenicali himself is a straight enough guy to to take it to take the job on and try to do the job in the best possible way. Um, but it's you know once you're a Ferrari man, it's very hard to become something else. I mean, we all like Ferrari, um, but it's you know it's up to him how he tries to approach it. He can either be Ferrari biased or job biased. Uh, I genuinely think he'll be job biased because he's been out of Ferrari for a while. He's seen the big world outside with uh, Lamborghini and Audi. Um, so I think he will apply some business, more business logic to it than motorist enthusiasm. There's a question here from retired noob, uh, probably not his real name, but says which teams will suffer most when F1 will ban 
areas for area development next year for the, the stabilization, the cutting of downfalls. Obviously, this is some of the floor work they're doing to try and stop the the growing downforce to avoid over overloading the tires. Um, what teams will be worse? I think you know everybody will suffer because everybody is getting the maximum that they know how to out of the car they've got. And if you do a change in, in specification as far as the floor is concerned, um, then you know you you are going to lose. It's percentage that's going to matter now. If you take, for example, you know the high rate cars with the detail they have down the sides of the floor and the way the barge boards work with that area, in theory they should lose. Um, they should lose more because it's a vital part of a high rate car to seal that floor. Um, if you take the lower rate cars like the Mercedes, then the detail they have down the floor and the barge board is working with with their concept and. To be honest, for them to get away without having to run the high rake to induce the downforce on the underfloor that they could get from it and keep running the low rake, then their bargeboard package and floor package is probably working just as hard as the high rake cars. So I don't think there's a black and white in it. I think it'll be depends upon who recovers in the best way possible um, as far as getting that little bit better out of it. But I don't think there is a black and white high rake, low rake situation. And again, it's the same deal. You know the teams that have got it right now will get it right then. So I think we'll still see the same spread across the grid. I don't think it's going to change anything. To be honest, it might lose a little bit of downforce for everybody, which is the intention to to stop the loading the tires, just to loading the tires a little bit. But I think it'll just be a a linear step across the grid. Question from Taylor Eric Brophy. He says, Kimi Raikkonen, who of course started his 322nd World Championship race, that equals the record of your old mate Rubens. Um, it asks whether he should make way for up-and-comers or perhaps carry on and serve as a mentor to uh, to up-and-comers. Well, that's a difficult question, to be honest. He's in a team um, that, that should, be using, being u- should be being used to bring in up-and-coming drivers. Ferrari have got a, a junior programme probably like no other now. I mean, they've got every driver in the, in the pit lane seems to be in a Ferrari junior programme of some sort. And they have got some decent drivers in there, so they have to give them a, a, an opportunity to get in. Um, the only way to get in is through Ferrari engine cars, which obviously Alfa Romeo and the Haas have. They're not going to step straight into a Ferrari drive, or if they do, they'd be pretty stupid at doing that, I think, because it would be a massive amount of pressure, just like a light switch going on. So they need a year in there with somebody. Um, you know, Kimmy's no slouch still. He can drive, but he is 40 years old. And I genuinely think he should step aside and allow young talent to come in because young talent is different from from the old hardened professional like Kimmy. They are they, they attack it in a different way. And I loved working with young guys. You know, whenever Rubens joined us at, at Jordan as a new guy, um, or Fisichella, you know, they were they were good guys to work with. Um, they just they just got on with the job. They took the car they had and they drove it the best way possible. You know, I think you can if you relate that back to sort of Roman Grosjean and some of his radio comments about the car and how good how bad the car is or how good the car is, it's again like a light switch. Something there that's that's, that's not functioning in that in that house. Um but Roman's comments it's not like a professional driver that, that you know, suddenly you've got somebody with a lot of experience and they know everything. They don't know everything. And I remember going way back to probably 2007 with um, Sebastian Vettel at, at Monaco with Toro Rosso. Um, and he, he was sitting in the garage and, and you know, 
he'd been going out and in, I think it was 2007, but he'd been going out and in and he was in, he was struggling to get a lap time out of it. And he was coming and saying, I don't know what's going on. One minute's understeer, one minute's oversteer, just make it do something so I can go out there and know the car will understeer or know the car will oversteer and I can learn the track and get myself, you know, together going around it. Um, and, it, you know, it's that sort of thing with a new driver. You you just have to give them a, a stable platform to drive with and allow them to get on with the job. And as I say, Grosjean to me is an example of just an example of an experienced driver who really doesn't bring anything to the team anymore. Kimmy, I think, does bring something to the team, but he's not he's not that involved. Kimmy wouldn't get involved with a young driver and, and try to sort of bring him on. You know, Kimmy has, doesn't put time into it like that. He drives the car. When he sits in the car, he turns the steering wheel and he gets on with the job and he does a very good job. But as far as putting time into the background of it, he, he, doesn't, he isn't really that person. Our next question, a slightly left field question from GR Best, uh, asks, what are your thoughts on the dearth of Northern Irish F1 drivers this century in particular? Uh, so the last he recalls showing any potential on the way up was Adam Carroll, but his peak was probably over a decade ago. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, it's not a bad record, really, whenever you think of John Watson and Eddie Irvine. Yeah, you can you can bring it into this decade and, and say we haven't um, got anybody there in the line at the moment. And it's sad to see, but we, you know, the, of the two drivers that sort of got a good chance in Formula One, both of them are race winners. Um, both of them done a very, very good job. So as far as talent's concerned, Northern Ireland um, has got a lot of depth of talent. And it's it's just about, again, the same old deal, to go up through F3, F2, and, and try to get knocking on the door of off one just costs you such an amount of money. And it just isn't there at the moment for, for an Irish driver to get into it. You know, it's all right looking at talent and saying, oh, you know, if you've got the talent, you'll get there somehow. Yeah, that might be. But it, it doesn't, you know, I've, I've not seen it work that way, to be honest. It's a, a very, very difficult thing. Yeah, well, it's all about the uh, resources, isn't it? And uh, perhaps I need to get uh, a Northern Irish driver onto the Ferrari Driver Academy. That would be a good way to uh, uh, to do it. Question about Ferrari. Charles Leclerc said that Ferrari have made a good step forward and said there's some more upgrades in the next few races. What changes did you see at Sochi and are they on the right path? That's from Rohini Prasad. There was a great deal of evidence of... Uh, of vast new bits in Sochi, really, was there? No, I wouldn't have got too excited about it. You know, it's the same old deal. Um, there's there's very few cars out there that you have actually got the best out of them, or very few cars with with very few teams that have actually got the best out of the car. I mean, uh, exceptionally, as is, is probably um, Verstappen in the Red Bull. He gets a you know he gets a pretty good deal out of the car, um, and obviously the Mercedes team gets pretty good out of the car. But the thing about if you keep changing the car and keep putting development parts on it, and you hear it so often, you know, we haven't optimized the, the car around these development parts. A bit like McLaren with their new nose. You know, this isn't the big package. This isn't optimized around this. That is like saying, well, I we haven't got the best out of the car. So for Ferrari, actually, not having big upgrades might just be as good a way of moving forward a bit as by putting up upgrades on the car. At least you get to understand the car. And sometimes, you know, week after week it's the same problem so you can address it and you're not just changing the problem because you put some other bits in the car you can address it in the setup so i think that, that ferrari are probably benefiting a fraction by not doing too much i mean they had some different wing end plates on the on the car at the weekend little bits and pieces um stuff that you know i wouldn't have written home to my mum about them but it's 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 bits that will they'll do a little bit of something um but they won't they won't change the characteristic of the car that dramatically 
so at least they can understand what they've got and try to keep on pushing to to make it a little bit better. So sometimes not changing bits mean, means you actually go forward. And of course, it's the loud bit in the back that's the the key thing for Ferrari in terms of performance. A uh, question from Alex Vokin who says, neither McLaren nor Renault seem to fully understand where and when they will perform well. Why is this? And that said, we've seen Renault start to perform well lately and McLaren fall back a bit. Do you think this is a, an accurate reflection of their relative performance or just track-specific? Well, as I said, you know, um, McLaren are, seem to be pushing on with developments to try to to get somewhere else because they've obviously got a big change over the, the winter with the Mercedes engine and they want to get as much on the car as they can this year. So they could be losing themselves a little bit on the way there. Um, you know, whenever you consider that Saints almost won in in, um, in Monza, you know, they, they haven't been doing too bad, but since then they've had a really bad run of luck. I mean, Saints crashing at the first corner in, in Sochi didn't really give them too big an opportunity. Um, and even crashing on the Friday um, when he did knock the rear wing off the car, again, it knocks the opportunity that little bit. Renault do seem to have got their 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 eye on the ball they seem to have got a bit of a handle on it as far as the out and out performance is concerned at one lap pace so you know they've obviously got themselves in a little bit of a a better position they ran the car with lower downforce on it at some point in time uh, for, for a few races and, and i think they discovered the, the characteristics of the car that meant the drivers liked the car now what they had to do and i said in, in one of my articles you have to now simulate that for a higher downforce level so that the car characteristics stay you know, with what the driver wants, as opposed to changing it dramatically. And, that, you know, we talk about the aero platform, how the car moves. The car's on the move all the time. How the car moves, changes ride height, front wing height to the ground, all that sort of stuff. That aero platform is moving around all over the place. And we call it the center of pressure. It's where the force serve is applied on the center of the car. If that's moving around too much, the driver doesn't, you know, the driver doesn't get any confidence in it. But if you can stabilize that a bit, and obviously run less downforce, that's what Renault seemed to do. They seemed to stabilise it a little bit to get to a point where the driver was happy with it. Now, if you can stabilise it with the higher downforce levels, which they now seem to have done, because they learned a lesson on, on what made the car a bit better, then you will go forward. So I think I think Renault have moved forward a bit, and McLaren haven't really had the best opportunity um, of the last couple of races. And as I say, they have lost themselves a little bit with their their developments, their new nose, and not quite getting the best out of it. And again, it's a bit like you know if you take Racing Point. We, we keep hearing that Lance Stroll's got all the latest bets and uh, and uh, Perez has got some of them. But, you know, Perez at the weekend was way ahead of Lance Stroll, whereas two, three races ago, they were nip, nip and tuck, really. So maybe all those developments don't always move you forward. At least they don't move you forward immediately. So just take stock of what you've got. Try to rationalise what makes it work and, and, and take a step from there. We've got a related question from Nigel Lawson who asks, is Ricardo starting to regret his jump to McLaren? Now, of course, Daniel himself says no, of course not. But he made this decision during the lockdown, during the hiatus in the season. So this was kind of May May time, I think it was there now. It seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it, when we were we were all uh, all housebound. But yeah, do you think that there will be something in the back of his mind thinking, hmm, have I made a mistake here? Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, at the end of the day, yes, with Renault you have as such a works team, but they they always seem to be hand to mouth. You know, they never seem to be quite that team that's really got that commitment to budget and and, and going somewhere. They have got commitment to to success, but they don't seem to have that big commitment to really taking on Mercedes as such. And joining McLaren, um, 
you know, they have a team that has shown, I think, that their management structure now with um, the new guys, including James Key, my old colleague, um, is is a good direction. They are going to have the Mercedes engine next year, which, without doubt, still is the best engine in the pit lane. Um, so I see no negatives in moving to McLaren. It might not be a step forward initially, but I, I don't think it's a step backwards by any means. And McLaren are up there and fighting. Yeah, I think they keep hearing all these money worries and you know, leasing the factory back from a buyer and all that sort of stuff. Well, that, that's business. So it's, it's, it's at the end of the day down to the team in the car and the team in the car are, are going to do a good job. And I think Daniel Ricciardo, you know, he, he did get sort of knocked about it, Renault, I suppose you might call it. I don't think the relationship ever really gelled. And I think McLaren will be a completely different relationship. They have a different relationship with their drivers for sure. And I think that will bring Daniel, who's a, a bit of a fun-loving character, I think that will bring him on a long, long way because he will realise that you can drive a Formula 1 car and have fun both in it and out of it. And um, McLaren's going to be a better place for that for him. That midfield battle has been has been an interesting one, isn't it? And certainly it'd be interesting to see if Renault can carry the momentum. Mugello was the interesting one for me for Renault, the fact that they went well at what is a relatively high downforce circuit, not peak downforce, but higher. That is kind of out of line with where they've been strong before. So that that for me is the thing that makes me think, do you know what? They might have actually, as you said, made that step in understanding. So I guess I guess sometimes that happens, doesn't it? A step in understanding. Something clicks and suddenly every every decision you make technically and all your setups just it all fits together like you've got that missing key. Yeah. I mean that's what it's all about, as I say, is, is always just recognizing where you are. And if you happen to get a setup in the car that um as I say, the driver the driver prefers and you can look at it in depth and see what the characteristics are that makes the car work in that condition. It's not just about having less downforce on the car. It's not just about going faster down the straights. You know, if you've got a black and white car, if you put downforce on it, you'll go quicker around the corner and slower down the straight. If you do it the other way around, you'll go slower around the corner and faster down the straight. So that if the car characteristics are the same, that, that's what happens. So then you optimize for each circuit to get the best compromise out of it. You know, you need straight line speed and you need cornering speed. So you get the best compromise out of it. But there's some t- there seemed to be something wrong where Renault, whenever they put this lower downforce setup on the car, they actually made a benefit. And as I say, you've got to look deeply into that and see what the characteristic change is, not just the fact there's less downforce on it, but the characteristic change to the car. And then try and mimic that with higher downforce levels. And I think they've done that and they've recognised it quite well. And that's what, that's what, as I say, Ferrari might you know gain from as well. Just sticking with what they've got and trying to understand why this car has got, you know, nervous rear end or whatever it be, you know. It looks like, to me, that the, the car's either got nervous on, on turn-in, or it just understeers, you know, one of the two. There's no in-between, really. So, you know, you need to recognise why that's happening. And it's happening because of the aero platform shifting around too much. Yes, they have a power deficit, and they have to run more downforce, maybe because of that and stuff. But, you know, you can only fix what you can fix. But recognise the problem and fix it and don't just create another problem by changing something that's, as I say, going to be another problem just. And just the the last question, because I want to give you a chance to talk about this because it's one of your favourite topics recently, from Adam Shipstone. Ask about the F2 crash and what changes can be made to cars, either in F, F2 or F1, to stop them going underneath uh, a barrier. Uh, obviously, in the last few episodes, you've, you've talked about that, but Obviously, that that illustrated exactly the point you've been talking about for a while about the low noses going under things and, and the safety. So I guess that the simple answer to that question is if you've got a higher nose geometrically, that's not going to happen, is it? 
Well, if you've got a higher nose geometric, there's less chance. Um, that's for sure. The conveyor belt and the Tech Pro barrier is a very good solution to absorbing impact. But the, the, the thing about the conveyor belt, you know, whenever it first came into to, um, to Vogue, it was to stop cars getting in between the tyres. But the nose just diving in through the tyres like um, Luciana Berti at Spa. He just disappeared into the tyres, basically. But that, that then caused another problem because the, the, the car could um, move that conveyor belt. So they started burying the conveyor belt into the ground. So the bottom of it wasn't was, was in the ground, basically buried. And that helped a bit. But whenever you've got a sort of tarmac runoff area now with all the Tech Pro barriers and conveyor belt, it's just sitting on top of the ground. So, you know, there isn't enough room there at turn three, basically for the speed the cars are travelling at. So you have to have a lot of barrier, a lot, a lot of Tech Pro barriers there to absorb the impact if you do go into it. And obviously with the little noses in, it just picks it all up. And you can see it, you know, it picked them up. Both cars went underneath the barrier. And uh, one of them ended up just within underneath one row of barrier the other one went straight in and you can see the concrete the concrete wall and fence post or the concrete base for the fence post was actually you know moved it was kinked outwards um so i think the solution no there isn't a solution to accidents accidents will always happen but i think we put ourselves in a situation with low noses where it's too much reactive to one type of accident which is hitting another car up the back that's that's traveling at nearly your speed you know the wheels are still turning and you're climbing over the top of them as opposed to hitting another car at the back or on the side that isn't moving or the barrier that we saw at the weekend you know whenever you look at um lance stroll's accident in Mugello, which was a puncture and he went into the to the tire barrier and the, and the conveyor belt you know it it reacted it it, it went in sideways so it, it you know it wasn't too big a problem for him yes it destroyed the car completely but this other accident, you know, going underneath it, and you know, you saw the mess when the the guy got out of the car. He's clambering over the top of debris of all sorts. You know, that just had to be slightly different, and you know, he'd be trapped in the car. And then, you know, you got the fire situation on top of that, which we don't see very often in Formula One, but we did see it there. So, with all that stuff around, I mean, obviously things catch fire. So that's something that needs to be reacted to. And I was a bit disappointed to to see that somebody was saying, "Oh, maybe the eighteen-inch rims, this, the thinner sidewall, gets cut too easily." That's rubbish, you know. It doesn't matter what happens, things will get broken. Things will get broken off the car. Tires will get punctured or whatever. You can't just stipulate you're going to have, you know, steel sidewalls in the tires to stop the puncture because we can't contain the car once it's having an accident. That's that's going the wrong way wrong way about it. So please look at the fact that these noses are too low and that somebody someday will be hurt because of it. And it's an easy change and it's an aesthetic change as well. So. There's nothing wrong with doing it. It won't do any harm, but it might just do that little bit of good. It would just help if people stopped having accidents to prove you right, which has happened a few times recently, but uh, I'd I'd encourage people against that. Well, uh, that's our full set of questions for today. Thanks very much to everyone who submitted them, and thanks as ever to Gary for his answers. We're actually going to have another weekend off uh, between races, which is a much uh, more standard pace, but we'll be back next week for more from Gary and more F1 technical chat. Do follow Gary on Twitter at GaryAndersonF1. Fling some questions in his direction or in my direction at F one so that we can uh, consider them for the next few podcast episodes as Gary always enjoys being here to answer your questions. So join us again next week. (laughs) 